0: As we have been, we've been in 1 Corinthians. Pastor J.R. did a great job last week as we jumped into chapter 10, and I love the way he says it. Uh, How many were here last week? He says, why is it every time I preach I get all the passages about sex? So I appreciated that he tackled what he said, the tough tough verses on sexual immorality and uh, how God provides a way out for us. Um, so as we move on from the first 13 verses, we're going to start in chapter 10, verse 14 tonight. Um, but the first thing I will say is, Oh, we're not quite out of the woods yet. So if you want to go ahead and put up the the first verse there, verse 14, it says, therefore, my dear friends flee from idolatry, or I love the, the passion on this one. My cherished friends. Keep on running far away from idolatry. So I'm probably going to spend more time here than I thought I would, but I I, I was reading this and then I just kind of chuckled to myself going, I wonder if Paul ever was sitting there going, are these people ever going to get it? Because he has to keep repeating some of the things over and over again. I mean, in this chapter alone, he's going to talk about idolatry four times. He mentions it four times. We talked about it once last week and the scriptures we're looking at tonight, it'll be two times. And then it's again later in the, in this chapter. And it's like, what do I have to do to get these people to get it? Anybody ever feel like that? How many times do we have to hear some? Three. Oh, there you go. Well, four of will be good here. We've seen this theme so many times in Corinthians. And as Marcus started when we first started looking at Corinthians with good reason, the Christians they had come out of background out of a background of pagan worship, pagan religion. They were worshiping Apollo, Aphrodite, and other pagan gods, and it was it was in their everyday life. Everywhere that they went, they were surrounded by these symbols and things that would challenge them. And I I remember when Marcus first started talking about it, I was like, Okay, I get it, but it's not a big deal to me. I mean, yeah, you see these things, but it's easy to just overlook it. And then it just really kind of hit me. I was like, I I thought about the habits that had been ingrained or established from the time of captivity when they were in Egypt, the things that that they had to live with. And then even as they got free and they were in the wilderness, They've been set free from all that. And what, what happens? One of the first times they have an opportunity. Moses is away too long. And, and Jr. referenced it last week. You go back to Exodus chapter 20. And we don't know what to do. Aaron, build us, build us an idol. So he takes all the gold. And they, and they build the idol you know, in the form of a calf. And it, very quickly, I'm going to flip over to Exodus 20. Or quickly-ish. In verse 4, 32, sorry, it says, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, the they being there, all the leaders that were present at the time, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And I just, I, I was just sitting there going, Man. I think about my own life, you know, the challenges that I may have faced, the things that, I'm, that I've struggled with over, over my years. I, I am a little older now since, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I, I'm just thinking about how easy is it for us to go back to what we're comfortable with than to stand and fight for the freedom that the Lord's promised us? Amen or O oh Amen. Yeah. (laughs) So here's Paul in this very first verse of this next section saying, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He's still addressing the fact that these temptations exist in the culture of that day. Many times removed from when they were in captivity, many times removed from when they were in the wilderness, but yet they're still surrounded by all, by all these temptations and the things that they keep falling back into. Kind of like today, if we stop and look at what we might deem idols of today. I won't touch on any in case anybody feels like I'm stepping on your toes. Some are big and square and have pictures that show up on it and phones and uh, things like that. Now, I don't want you to feel like, you know, here, he's just picking on the Corinthian church and the Corinthians. Because we have the, uh, the benefit of being able to kind of look at all the scripture now that they may not have. But we'll see as we read further in the, in the, in the books that there are similar addresses that Paul makes to the Galatians, the Ephesians, and the Colossians right? Let's uh, go ahead and put up Galatians. Galatians five sixteen says, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature for the sinful natures desire. What is contrary to the spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In Corinthians, Paul says, flee from idolatry. Here he kind of, I would say, gives it more definition as we go into the next verses. In verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Are we done yet? No. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before. Those that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I see that definition. And then I I was reminded, and I didn't put this scripture up, but in, in Ephesians, interestingly enough, in chapter five as well, starting in verse three, it says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. In verse 5, he says, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God. So now he's, you know, picked on the Corinthians, picked on the Ephesians, the Colossians. So let's go to Colossians. Chapter 3, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever brings Whatever belongs to your earthly na- nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming. And just a little bit later, he says in verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in, in the image of Christ. So we see this theme of challenges. So we go back to the Corinthian Christians and I think what he's talking is whether some of these guys were actually practicing or participating in some forms of the idolatrous practice or if they were just experiencing it in their everyday life, walking by it, seeing it, whatever. The struggle was real and hence the encouragement to flee from idolatry. I think then, as I was reading this whole passage, and I'm going through from 14 to, to verse 22, but as I started to look at this, I think one of the other reasons that Paul starts to address this, as we'll see in these next few scriptures, is that the Corinthian church was under, underestimating the purpose of the Lord's Supper, as spiritual fellowship with Christ as he gets ready. To, and he's getting ready to address that. But what I love first is he stops in verse 15, And he kind of appeals to our sense of intelligence and he's not, you know, being flippant. He just says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I have to say. So he's setting it up for, okay, I'm getting ready to give you something to let you think about and let you decide for yourselves. But he wants you to view this upcoming issue with intelligent discernment. And then he starts in verse 16 and he gives his argument that should empower them to flee from the idolatry he was just talking about. And it's an argument from the nature of the Lord's supper because the supper really is powerful but not the way the Corinthians were using it. I think they very well just viewed it as another ceremony like all of the others. There was no harm. He says in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. And then I looked at that. That's. And then I started looking at several other translations for that same scripture. And you go into is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing a participation a co-participation or communion in the blood of Christ is not the bread the same way which we break a sharing a participation a co-participation or communion in the body of Christ. Paul is saying we should want to flee idolatry because in the Lord's Supper we are sharers in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ. I kinda put this down as a little bit of a joke, but I I know many people say when teachers get up and say, you know, it's not an official scripture, you know, they've been sharing for a long time. It's not a, an official meeting until I read a scripture from the Bible, so let's, let's read a scripture, right? So lately, I feel like this is not a legitimate meeting if I don't share a Greek or Hebrew word and what it means. But the words that I was just pointing out, the sharing, the participation, the co-participation, the communion in verse 16, interestingly enough to me, which I had never seen before, is the word Koinonia. Which means to fellowship, associate, it's community, communion, or joint participation. As he was doing the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Matthew twenty-six twenty, it says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So I go back and I look at, okay, so his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of, of sins for many And we look at what he just said here in verse 16, that we're sharers, we're participators, we're in communion, we're having that fellowship, that koinonia, and I don't wanna miss out on that. I don't wanna take that lightly. So he's making his case so far for them to consider why they should flee from idolatry. And he goes into verse 18. And he says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And it was funny, as I was reading this, I saw a couple different commentaries from people and somebody actually wrote this. And I thought, wow, if they wrote it, that means somebody asked this question at one point or really thought this. No, it does not mean that they ate the altar. I was like, I never thought that, but Okay. But what it does mean is that they share in the benefits of what happens on the altar. On the altar of God, on the altar, God removes guilt and forgiveness, sin, and makes peace and establishes a fellowship of thanksgiving and love. So to be a sharer in the altar is to share in all those things that God is doing on the altar. That I want to be a part of. I take that back to verse 16 with that same thought process, thinking maybe Paul's saying the same thing there when he says that bread is sharing in the body of Christ and the cup is sharing in the blood of Christ. So when Christ was sacrificed on the cross, he shed his blood, he gave his body for us. God was removing my guilt forgiving my sin and making peace and establishing fellowship with, with me or anyone who believes. And so the purpose of the Lord's Supper was to receive from Christ the nourishment and strength. Hope and joy that comes from all he purchased for us on the cross, especially having fellowship with him. We share in the body and the blood by sharing in the benefits that those, the body and the blood bought. Including, and I kind of did these out of order. I went from 16 to 18, including verse 17, which is unity in the body of Christ. Verse 17 says, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And I love this. I just wrote down, it's family. We're all one body. What have we been talking about? Family. And you look at the cross references for verse 17, and it goes into Romans twelve five. So though many, so we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Or just a little bit further in 1 Corinthians in 12, verse 12, it says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, through many are one body, so is it with Christ. And then just in verse 20 of chapter 12, it says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So in the Lord's Supper, we get to, and this is what I love with the way We have moved to do communion over the last few months as family. One, we get to partake and we get to have the nourishment and the hope and the joy and the strength that comes from everything that the Lord did. But we also get to have that family aspect. And we get to strengthen and encourage and and spread joy with each other as well. Moving on. Verse 19. This is where it gets fun. He says do I mean then that a sacrifice to offer to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? And he immediately answers in verse 20, he says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants or sharers with demons. So guess what? Here's that word again, sharers. And what does that mean? Doesn't mean that we eat demons. But it does mean, I think, that we get entangled in their power. We submit to them. We, come, we become vulnerable to them. We enter into some kind of fellowship. We affirm them in some way and give them leeway into our lives when we commune at the table. That's not the Lord's. I want to say that again. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And what, what I feel like that is, is that we get entangled in their power, we submit to them, we become vulnerable to them, we enter into some kind of fellowship and we affirm them in some way and give them leeway in our lives. Conversely and more positively, apply that back to verse 16. From a positive standpoint is that when we take the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, We get entangled with Christ, we're submitting to him, we become vulnerable to him, and we give him leeway into our life. We're submitted to him, and we're entering into fellowship with him. And that's why we call it the Lord's Supper, communion. It's communing with Christ rather than with demons, as he says in verse 20 there. Is this making sense? So I think that the Corinthians were, he's admonishing them because I don't think they've truly got it yet. They're underestimating the power, maybe overestimating, like they're using it, uh, somebody this morning said it as a a get out of hell free card. They were talking about it in a different context, but I I think this way the Corinthian church might be looking at, oh, we can do communion as that because it'll forgive our sins. We have communion, but the Lord's like, no, 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 no. There's real power when you take the Lord's Supper. There's real power for the enemy when you take it, when you participate in theirs as well. And so he wants you to be very conscious of the choices that you make. So the Corinthians were underestimating the real power of the Lord's Supper, that it comes from its true purpose, namely to deepen and strengthen our participation in the benefits of the cross to nourish our fellowship with Christ himself. And the reason this is powerful against idolatry is given in the very next verse, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You just can't. Because when you truly partake in the cup of the table of the Lord, you're being nourished and satisfied by the Lord. You're loving the Lord. You're delighting in the Lord. You're trusting in the Lord. You're fellowshipping with the Lord. And that's what it meant to share the in the blood and body of Christ. To sit with Jesus at the banquet of the benefits of his death. And in that kind of experience, idols and demons, they should lose all their attraction and all their power. They have no value. goes on into, I love the way he ends this in verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy or are we stronger than he? I use the new living translation of here. What do you, do we dare to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Do we think we are stronger than he is? Paul asked this question because it's very probable, as I, I said a, minute, a couple minutes ago, that many of the Corinthians made light of these heathen feasts and thought there was no harm in it. Here, we must abstain from every form of idolatry because the Lord is a jealous God. We can go back to Exodus, because just prior to when they decided to make a new idol because Moses left them unattended for just a little too long in their mind, right before they had just gotten the 10 Commandments, Exodus 20. It says, I am Jehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. How quickly they forgot. I love I just captured several other things. Just a great reminder of a jealous God and that we don't want to, I don't want to provoke his anger towards me. No, 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 no. I I went to Isaiah 42.8. It says, I am Jehovah. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to any other, nor will I give my praise to idols. Yep. 42, eight. Deuteronomy thirty-two sixteen. And before this be done, persons should consider whether they are stronger than he. It is a dangerous thing to provoke God's anger unless we can withstand his power. But who can stand before him when he's angry? A little bit further in 32, it says, They have made me jealous. This is God replying. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Now I jump over to Isaiah 45, verse 22. It says, Look unto me, for I am God, and there is none other. And I think about the abiding as we spent, you know, studying John. I went to John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Just the continual reminder of where my focus wants to be. Remembering, when we look at the Lord's Supper, remembering what his death was for, but all the benefits that come with that. This was actually a really good study for me the last few weeks. Just Sometimes you can get so caught up in the rote exercise of doing communion. Anybody ever been there? It's so easy to, to do. You, you stop and you know it has importance. I'm going I'm to think through. I'm going to make sure I'm in the right place. But to be reminded again of What I was looking at here, all the things that his death did and how it purchased and that it was so that the the fellowship and the relationship, it just, it was revitalizing again to remind me to dive in. Everything we need is in between these two covers. Every answer that we need is right here. So I started looking at okay, what is a takeaway from this particular passage? And really, I really, two simple things. First, I think we have to evaluate and expel the threat of idolatry in our everyday life. You know what those might be in your life, but if you don't, idolatry is anything that comes between you and God. Simply put, you could sit down and write a list. What are the things that I value more than I value my time and my relationship with the Lord? And if you write anything down, that's an idol. Harsh, might sound harsh, but truth. I think of Joshua. He said, he told his people that their nation would be destroyed if they persisted in idolatry that their souls would suffer eternal death. He said, you must make your decision today. You must decide whether you want to serve the idols of this life or the living God. Choose you this day, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So to that, I would simply say, in the words of Paul and Christ, my cherished friends keep on running far away from idolatry. Every one of you sitting here are my cherished friends. Why? Because you're part of my family. And I want the absolute best for each and every one of you that God has for you. And second, my second takeaway was just again, what I started to say a minute ago, was just the realization of the power that resides in in the Lord's Supper. I just, I I wrote this down that I I was, I can't even remember who I read it from. I would give them credit. It just says the Lord's Supper is precious beyond words as a gift from Jesus to his church, not only as a reminder of his death for us, but also as an occasion when he draws near to nourish our intimacy with him and strengthen us by his shed blood and his broken body. So I I only felt it fitting tonight. I knew I would get through what I wanted to say a little early. I just felt the importance of taking communion tonight again as a family. I know we offer it every Sunday now and we do it once a month, but I just, I have a renewed vigor for the importance of what the Lord's Supper stands for. Not just for me individually, but for us corporately as well. And so uh, I'm just going to ask everybody if they would stand. So we have two trays down here. I'll, I'll have everybody come down. You're going to have to come down and get it. And I'm going to actually encourage you to just stay down in the altar down here tonight. So Lord, I just come to you right now. I thank you for your word. And even the words that you delivered through Paul, the challenge that he gave to the the Corinthian Christians, Father God. Lord, it wasn't because they were bad people. It's just he's wanting to see them walk in the fullness of everything that you had for them. And Lord, I pray that for everybody here tonight that they walk in the fullness that that you have for them, that they would understand more about you when they walk out the doors tonight than they did when they came in. Father, they would have an encounter with you tonight in such a new and powerful way. And Lord, just in each of our lives, even now, Father God, as we check our hearts, as we we evaluate our lives, Father, bring to mind anything that we have placed ahead of you, Father God, that you would consider an idol in our lives. Father God, we lay it at the altar tonight. Father God, we lay it at your feet and say, Lord, we don't want... Anything more than you. May you be the first and foremost in our lives. May you be the sustenance that we're looking for every day. Yes, there are things in our life that we have to do. And we do those diligently and we do them unto you, but we don't do them over you. Father, I just thank you for your broken body, Father God, and for the blood the sacrifice that you made to atone for our sins, but also to nourish and strengthen us, to encourage us, to give us hope, to give us joy, and most importantly, to give us a relationship with you. And so, Father God, as we take your supper tonight, Father God, may we just spend time with you and spend time with our koinonia, with our community here, Father God. Lord, I just thank you for that in Jesus Jesus precious name. And Brian, if you just put on some something simple in the background. If you want to go ahead and come down and, and grab the elements and I just want to encourage you to stay here in the altar area and just let's let's gather together. Don't take it by yourself.